0: Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning. Last week, we read the story of the two sons, that famous parable of the prodigal son. We read of the one son who demanded his share of the inheritance from his father, and he demanded it, wanted to have it immediately. His father sold his land, the land and gave the proceeds to a son who then um, went to a far country, as far away from the father's house as he could get carried away all this money in a bag, and only to uh, spend it all on lavish parties and wild living. So, starving among the pigs, which is where he ended up, if you remember, about the worst place a Jewish boy could ever end up, <laughs> feeding pigs in a pigsty. He came to his senses. He decided to go back home to his father, hoping that somehow his father would take him back. And contrary to all expectation, his father gave him a loving welcome and a, and a warm embrace. And such was, his, such was his father's joy upon his return that uh, his father killed the prized, fatted calf, and he, and he threw a big party in his son's honor. And so there was feasting, and there was happy music, and there was dancing, It was a wonderful occasion. His older brother, however, couldn't believe his eyes and refused to go to the party. And so we read from the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. He was lost and is found. Well, while all this partying was going on, the older son had been working in the field. Well, of course he was. This isn't surprising. I mean, you know, this guy took life very seriously. They say your birth order determines your outlook on life. And here the oldest son seems to be true to the firstborn role. He was responsible and hardworking, a follower of the rules, and in all things good and respectable. So it's not surprising then that he should be outraged when this immoral brother of his, who was out spending all the family estate, he was outraged that his father, father should give him such a party, such a welcome home. I mean, you can practically hear him muttering to himself, uh, why is the whole house turned upside down for this no good, this good-for-nothing playboy? He doesn't have a responsible bone in his body. Imagine squandering all his wealth. He made his bed so he ought to lie in it. What's all the celebrating about? He doesn't deserve a party. And why aren't all these party-goers out in the field with me? I mean, isn't there work to do? What was my father thinking? Has he lost his mind? Doesn't he have a sense of justice? It's so unfair. It's incredible. Last week, we looked at Rembrandt's famous uh, painting of the prodigal son and... uh, we noticed the warm embrace of, the, of the, the father and the son there kneeling before him. You know, he had come back from his self-inflicted, you know, uh, dereliction, and, and he received love and joy and a party. But then there's this other guy to the right in the scene, uh, and that would be the older Brother. And if you take a closer look at this older brother, uh, his hands are crossed kind of in judgment. And if you look more carefully at his face, his eyebrows go up, you know, the uh, look of puzzlement. But at the same time, there is a look of contempt. Filled with bitterness and resentment, this guy refuses to go to the party. He was angry. Tim Keller in his excellent book on this parable, The Prodigal God, which by the way, there's a copy out on the other table and there are many books on parables out there on the table in the other room. But Tim Keller says that the first sign you have an elder brother spirit is that when your life doesn't go as you want, you're not just sorrowful, but you become angry and bitter. And bitter. Elder brothers believe that if you just leave, live a good life, then you should have a good life. They believe that God should give them smooth sailing in life as a reward for very working very hard to be upright and, and to stay clean, you know, live up to high moral standards. Good people should never have to suffer. Elder brothers have a sense of entitlement. Well, I'm such a good person then God owes me a good life. They believe their faithfulness ought to guarantee favor in this life. But then, you know, when life gets hard and suffering ensues, as it must for every human being, God is the first one to get the blame. You owe me, God. I didn't do anything to deserve this. I have been so good. I mean, I've lived a clean life, and this is what I get? Well, the father, noting uh, his oldest son's obvious anger, assured his son of his love and expressed his appreciation for him, for his faithfulness and obedience. My son, my dear child, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. Come join the party. But the son refused, and that refusal broke the father's heart. And I believe the pain in the father's house at that moment was even more excruciating than the pain caused by the younger son when he left home to go to a far country. In fact, it hurt the father when he realized that his son had been living in the far country even at home. That he had actually all his time been a stranger in his house. The older son was present in body, but absent in heart. He kept all the rules of the house, but he didn't really appreciate the father. Nor did he know anything about joy or love. And you see, that's really the scary thing, that you can be a respectable church person. You can come to church every Sunday. You can read your Bible faithfully. You can pray daily. You can live in the atmosphere in the house of Christianity and yet not really know the Father or be at home with Him. There are two attitudes in particular that can lead to such a tragedy, a spirit of ingratitude leading to a lack of joy, and a spirit of judgmentalism leading to a lack of love. Both can keep us in the far country of the Spirit a long way from God, even though we might be around holy things. Ingratitude and judgmentalism. And we see both attitudes in the oldest son in Jesus' parable. The spirit of ingratitude is focused in in the oldest son's response to his father's invitation to join the party. Look, all these years, I have been slaving for you I have been slaving and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never threw me an appreciation party. The poor guy, doesn't feel appreciated. But the fact is, he has never appreciated his father, who gave him all his land, his provisions, a roof over his head, his daily bread. My son, all I have is yours. It never occurred to this son that his good fortune came to him more as a gift than on anything that he really did. But then in his ingratitude, he began to take his relationship with the father for granted, and so life with his father was dull and monotonous, distinctly lacking in joy. All these years I've slaved for you. I mean, life with father apparently was a burdensome thing, nothing but drudgery. Where's the love for the father? Now, some of us have a Christianity like this, we do our best to live faithfully, but there's no joy in it. For us, Christian faith is basically living by rules. We do our best to keep our rules, to be a nice person, keep our nose clean, and then at the first sign of trouble in our lives, we complain that we deserve better, for after all, we've been obedient and dutiful and law-abiding and hard-working. And we grow resentful. Resentment and complaining can become a way of life. And and when it does, we are as lost as lost can be. God, however, wants us to come back home. And the way home is through the discipline of gratitude. Gratitude is a choice. You and I can choose to be grateful. It's a discipline we can practice. Now, listen to the words of Henry Henry Nowen, who was a well-known Christian writer. In fact, he wrote a book on the on the Prodigal Son, which is a great book. This is what he says about gratitude. He says, "I always thought of gratitude as a spontaneous response to the awareness of gifts received." But now I realize that gratitude can also be lived as a discipline. The discipline of gratitude is the explicit effort to acknowledge that all I am and have is given to me as a gift of love, a gift to be celebrated with joy. He goes on to say, gratitude as a discipline involves a conscious choice. I can choose to be grateful even when my emotions and feelings are still steeped in hurt and resentment. It's amazing on how many occasions present themselves in which I can choose gratitude instead of complaint. I can choose to be grateful when I'm criticized, even when my heart responds in bitterness. I can choose to speak about goodness and beauty, even when my inner eye still looks for someone to accuse or something to call ugly. There's always a choice between resentment and gratitude. We can be resentful people or we can be grateful people. So perhaps we need need to hear the words of our Heavenly Father. All that I have is yours. It's all yours. And indeed, when you think about it, we're rich already and we have a lot to be thankful for. Every time we sit down and think about the goodness of God, we can join the party and we can experience joy. Joy. To miss the joy is to miss everything. Be grateful of who you are and what you have. It's all gift. Now if a spirit of ingratitude can keep us in the far country, even while being in the Father's house, a spirit of judgmentalism is even worse. And again, the attitude is focused in the oldest son's response to his father. I've always obeyed you. You never even gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Notice he cannot say, my brother, but only this son of yours. You notice that? This son of yours. He immediately disassociated himself from his brother, while at the same time congratulating himself on his own goodness. I have never disobeyed. I've always followed the rules. I remain ever faithful, hard work, responsible servant, That's me. How proud he was and so self-satisfied. Now, this son is uncomfortably familiar, (laughs) maybe because we see, if we're honest with ourselves, we see something of ourselves in him. Because do we not also have a tendency to congratulate ourselves on our goodness? while kind of looking down on those who, you know, who have not lived by our standards. I mean, is there not something of the Pharisee in us? How easy it is for respectable church people to think that there must be something really decent and nice about us that God should call us to Himself and that we should be among all of these people who come to church. so we pride ourselves on that, on our decent lives. At the same time, we may not have much love or sympathy for those who have a far different experience, who have bottomed out, those who have failed, those who have made really wrong choices, those who are lost, those who have a radically different experience than uh, than, uh, we have. So, unfortunately, the Christian church is crowded with elder brothers, and the sad thing is that those outside of the church who could benefit from what the church has to offer pick up bad vibes and they want no part of it. Now, imagine what would have happened if the younger brother on his way home had, met, had first met his older brother along the way before getting to, his, to see his father. He never would have made it home. He would rather have gone back and fed the pigs. You know that? So how many needy, hurting people never make it back to the father's house because of the elder brothers in the church and the elder sisters? If being at home with a father means constantly contending with the self-righteous judgmental attitudes and words of elder brothers, they would just as soon head the other way. As one man said of his his church, I had to get past the negative members if I'm positive meaning in my faith. God is more loving than we are towards other people, and that hasn't gone unnoticed by those outside the church. Now some time ago, uh, a book came out that really rattled church leaders. It was tough reading. (laughs) It's a book entitled "UnChristian: What a New Generation Really Thinks about Christianity and Why It Matters." And in this book, David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons, two people who lead opinion research companies, study why so many young people, the younger generation in particular, feels alienated from Christianity and why they're staying away from the church. And the results from asking all these young folks about faith and the church and so on, the results are actually not very encouraging. Um, And the problem was at the top of the list was our judgmentalism. The researchers say that young people believe that we are more interested in proving we are right than that God is right. They say Christians are more focused on condemning people than helping people become more like Jesus. And then the authors point out in this book how frequently and vehemently the Scriptures condemn judgmentalism, and they quote a young Christian girl uh, who had been working among prostitutes in Thailand. This girl says, some sin is more visible than others, but we all do it. I have no right to judge anyone because I'm just like them. I need to keep an open mind and an open heart. And uh, that's certainly good advice for us. And then Kinnaman and Lyons observe that arrogance is perhaps the most socially acceptable form of sin in the church today. And if we want to get beyond that, then we need a different, more winsome approach towards outsiders. Basically, uh, those who are on the outside are saying to us, according to these researchers, listen to me, don't label me don't be so smart, put yourself in my place, be genuine, be my friend with no other motives. And then I would add, be aware of your own brokenness. Sadly, as one commentator puts it, our culture doesn't look at us as a faith of second chances where forgiveness and mercy can be discovered, but rather as a religion of judgment So, you know, the Christian brand in our culture today is really suffering, and some of it is, a lot of it is from the elder brothers and sisters in the church and the attitude that they they convey. Now, I was thinking about this. So, this book was written about 10 years ago, so I was thinking about this even as I was sitting here before church, And, and, and this is the problem, is that now, even to make a statement of principle, like this is true, we believe this to be true, I stand upon the Word of God, this is what God says, that very statement is considered to be judgmental, right? You say, no, I don't believe this uh, is immediately to be labeled judgmental. You can hardly today make a statement of what you believe to be true for everybody, Uh, without being labeled a bigot or, you know, you're judgmental and so on. And that's the predicament we find ourselves in. I mean, this is the hard part. You can say, you know, we believe that God's Word says that same-sex marriage is not God's intention. Just to make the statement is to be called a bigot. That's a really hard position to be in, But you and I have to be careful in that we cannot, along with that statement of truth, give a vibe of judgmentalism. (laughs) In other words, truth and grace must coexist in equal balance. Jesus could do that perfectly. Jesus said, no, this is true. But He was full of grace, and the younger brothers, you know, uh, in the culture, love in that day, loved Jesus. He hung around Him in droves. He couldn't get the older, you know, the, the older brothers he had a problem with. Truth and grace and holding it in balance, even when we're called things that we don't like to be called, we have to be full of grace. And that's where we need Jesus, when we're witnessing to this culture we need the, the firmness of taking a stand, but we also need the gentleness of grace. And, uh, and that's hard for us human beings, you know. Um, a lot depends upon our attitude with which we hold these firm beliefs. Um, so, I, I kind of state the problem. It's what I've been feeling. Like, man, I, I, I believe this. Uh, and that is not to be judgmental because, you know, the Lord calls us to discern truth, truth from falsehood, good from bad. We have to be discerning. Christians believe that there is a morality built into the fabric of the universe, that there is, there is absolute truth. It's public truth, it's true for everybody, but we have to hold to that truth with an awful lot of grace without going over the line uh, between discernment and being judgmental. It's very hard. (laughs) It's really hard. Uh, Would that we were all just like Jesus. But we have to pray for that, right? We have to pray. Well, there are two sons in the parable, and I imagine that you you and I can see ourselves in each of those sons At different times of our life. Both needed to come home, both needed the embrace of the Father, both needed healing and forgiveness, but from the story itself it seems clear that perhaps the hardest conversion to go through is the conversion of the one who stayed home and yet was living in a far country. If unrighteousness breaks the father's heart, so too does self righteousness. Well, uh, as in the case with many of the parables, we'll see, uh, this parable has some loose ends. Did the older son finally join the party? Did his attitude towards his brother change? Was he ever able to admit his own forgiveness from the Father? We don't know. Perhaps he was never able to overcome his attitude of ingratitude and judgmentalism. Perhaps he never did experience joy or love. But there is hope for those uh, of us elder brothers and sisters because God continues to extend His invitation to us. And the question is, Will you and I join the party and enter into the Father's joy? Or will we remain outside, out there, standing out there in the far country, even at home, a stranger in the Father's house? Let's pray. Uh, Lord, this story comes too uncomfortably close to us, uh, and... uh, We have to check ourselves all the time. We want to hold to truth, and yet we want to be full of Your grace so that we don't send anybody away, away from Your love and from Your joy. So, Lord, uh, help us to just to be like You, to find that balance in our life. Lord, help us to establish, to cultivate the discipline of gratitude To know that all that we have is, well, that You've given us everything. It's all from You. And Lord, to know that is to experience joy. But Lord, preserve us from self-righteous judgmentalism. We want to love as You loved. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.